Time for your medicine. One, two, three, four. Why am I sick? Because at your age, your body is changing and weakening. Like lizards? In a way, like lizards or crabs. When they molt, they're very fragile. And starfish? They only change once at birth. And afterwards? Afterwards, a new cycle begins. A new life. Drink up. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Colro Lane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 111, back to Cole's choice. What are we talking about today? We are talking about Evolution from 2015, directed by Lucille Hadjialilovic and starring Max Brabant, Roxanne Durand, and Julie-Marie Parmentier. It's about a seaside community populated only by women and boys, and one of the boys, Nicholas, discovers a corpse in the ocean while swimming one day. This leads him to begin to question a lot of things, from his surroundings to why he and the other boys are being hospitalized and subjected to mysterious procedures, to his very existence. I remember you talking about this after you saw it. You were so excited and couldn't wait until you could show it to me. Yes, it was a very exciting day. I saw this first at Fantastic Fest here in Austin, and that festival happens here every September. And it's one of the best genre festivals going today. And I don't know about you, but for me, the festival experience can break a couple of different ways. The great thing about such a well-curated festival is that you can really trust the programmers and take a chance on practically anything, walk into any theater, and you've got a really good shot at seeing something fantastic. No pun intended. And that was definitely the case for Evolution. I hadn't heard of it, I had zero expectations, and it blew me away. It instantly became one of my Desert Island films. Had you seen Innocence prior to this? No, I hadn't. I was completely ignorant of her directorial output. And I've had really good luck with Fantastic Fest. I had a similar experience in the 2009 edition of the festival with Van Diemen's Land, which we covered back in episode 28. The downside, though, sometimes of the festival environment is that you can really get carried away for any number of reasons, not the least of which is sleep deprivation. And so maybe sometimes in the cold light of day, an experience that was galvanizing at the time then turns out to not be so much the case in retrospect. Is that the case for you when you do festivals or marathon screenings? I know what you mean about the sense that you can get kind of carried away because the audience, I think, can give a pass to something in that environment that they might not otherwise. I only have a couple of similar experiences and I haven't gone back to watch those films again. What were they? The one that stands out to me is The Castle. I've been mentioning it to you for a while, and I still haven't seen it again, and I remember just thinking it was really charming and fun, and it got guffaws from the audience. Actually, I suspect that one will turn out to be awfully good. It's fairly well regarded, and I know a lot of our Australian friends in particular really like that one. But specifically for Evolution for me, it has not diminished with multiple viewings. I just continue to like it more and more. Yeah, it was obvious to me that this one was going to be a little different because this one even works perfectly as a half-remembered dream. Fortunately, when it was available and I immediately bought it and showed it to you, it really held up for me too. It lures me in right away because it begins underwater. You know I'm hooked. And the first obvious thing to say about it is that it's beautiful. These underwater seascapes are magnificent. They are visual poetry. And I think that you're like me in that I come from a long line of Jacques Cousteau fans and grew up devouring all the oceanic nature shows that I could. So it's soothing for me looking up at the sun from underwater. I don't think that's the case for everyone. I know some people might find that a little bit claustrophobic. Is there anything anxiety inducing about that sensation for you? 
Absolutely not. The complete opposite. When I was a kid, I think I've mentioned this before, I wanted to live underwater. And so that's always the view that I remember having, and especially the soundscape of being underwater. This is incredibly beautiful. There's that brilliant color spectrum of ocean life and that undulating world. It seems like these are things that have grown up that are bendable and subject to outside forces. Well, then we're right in line with each other because my instinctive reactions to these opening shots, to me, the ocean in this context, it feels protective and kind of benevolent, which is not always the case. But these opening scenes, I have it right here in my notes too, it makes me feel like I could live under the ocean. Since that's not possible... Yet. <laughs> at the very least, I would never stay indoors if I was surrounded by this setting. And you nailed it too. The sound design is so full of the soothing sounds of the sea. And it really underlines for me how much I love how little is actually said in this. You can see why it appeals to me immediately. No unnecessary yapping. The ocean does all the talking. We next see a young boy swimming, floating. We're underneath him. But almost immediately again, there's this element of a threat. Is that a body that we see? I still wasn't sure, and I'm still not sure after repeated viewings. You can say that at so many points in the film. Did I actually just see that? Did something just ambush my consciousness out of the corner of my eye? And I think I would have to rewatch and freeze frame or slow progression frame to see everything that is in each of these shots. You just can't take it all in. So our protagonist, Nicholas... He is the first human figure that we encounter, floating and diving. He chances upon this body, like you mentioned, and it has a starfish on it. He is reasonably alarmed by this, of course, and he later reports this body with a star on its belly to the adults. He draws it, too, which is very important to me. You get the impression that, quite rightly, this is an image that is going to be with him for a long time, perhaps forever. I think it's a real rite of passage, that first time in your life that you are confronted with the idea of death, especially up close. It's a concept that takes a great deal of wrestling with for most kids, and my most vivid memories about the first time, I remember really turning the idea over in my mind, they're cinema-related too. Watership Down, probably like a lot of kids my age, is the earliest thing that I remember inspiring those thoughts and really making me think about the idea that I don't go on in this body forever this way. But it was always such a fascinating subject for me. I never found it frightening when I was young. And I really relate to this scene. You can see it come up again shortly when the village boys bring the remnants of some sea creature to Nicholas's window and they bury it together. I can easily see myself at that age participating in this kind of ceremony. Do you have similar touchstones for this? Was it similarly fascinating for you at that age? Or can you even pinpoint generally when you were first aware of the idea of mortality? I can pinpoint the latter. I remember my great-grandmother's funeral. Though my memory, I can't imagine, can possibly be correct. Because in my memory, she was encased in some sort of a plastic bubble on top of a table. So mm. <laughs> no, we're not that weird. But cinematically, I think I got the other end of the stick. I was introduced to Dumbo, so it was all about <laughs> ennui and depression and angst from an early age rather than mortality. Well, Nicholas doesn't have the benefit of being ushered into these things by beautiful hand-drawn animation and the dulcet tones of Art Garfunkel the way that I was. There are no cinemas or video stores on this quiet, blocky village that he lives in. What he has is the companionship of these boys, which at times, pretty much all the time, seems a little adversarial. And then what is presumably his mother. And no ready answers are coming from either source. Her main function, it would appear, is to provide him with medicine and with this food that she prepares with deep satisfaction. Was that the first element of the film that you found unsettling? I was definitely trying to puzzle things out right away. Who is she? Because I couldn't remember him calling her mother specifically. And I thought, gee, she seems possibly on the younger side to be his mother. Maybe it's his sister. But there's no doubt that she's providing those basic needs, nourishment, shelter, 
but also there's some nurturing to an extent. She seems warm to him. Nurturing and nourishment. I don't know if we're watching the same movie because if you look at it, Oliver Twist had better meals than this. It's their version of nourishment. It's key to their life force. The food for me is just the first indicator that this is not a happy-go-lucky childhood by the seaside, obviously. Right, because it's bluish-green and there are worms in it. There may be worms, of course. So it's not what we're thinking about, but it's clearly something that they're trying to provide that seems to be a necessity. That's what I got out of it. Not a deprivation. hmm, I read it a little differently than you because there's an uneasy intimation of danger in her behaviors to me. Early on, for example... When she goes out to look for him, the implication is that he wasn't supposed to be out swimming unobserved. For young children especially, this seems to be a very closed-in, austere life, which on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe you have a different feeling about it. Do you get the impression at any point that this is a community that could have ever been classified as utopian, that was once grand and now fallen? People don't have a laugh around here, so that makes (laughs) me think not utopia. But... When I do reflect again on it, when I do watch it over and over again, he seems to be instead swimming without permission because he is free diving here, which is pretty dangerous for any age person, especially in the ocean to do. So these instincts seem natural to a certain degree. And even though at the end of the day, there's some warmth coming from her, it's not a hugely close relationship with any of the boys and the women it didn't seem like they were frightened of them. So I was just sort of going with it to see how it would unfold. Well, maybe it's my pessimist streak, but it seems to me that this place has always had kind of a dark purpose. There's an undercurrent of menace to it, to me. And what keeps me from giving it the benefit of the doubt, I think, is the implicit inescapability of an island. You look at islands all throughout cinema history, Skull Island, the Island of Lost Souls, the island lair that we just talked about in Invention for Destruction. There's never a place called Happy Fun Time Island. And if there were, that's probably the one you should be the most scared of. (laughs) True. I didn't realize it was an island until the end. So this colony, this medicine, these women who are so much alike, it seems that it's all in aid of preparing these boys for something. Now you said you didn't necessarily assume they were mothers at first, possibly sisters or other caretakers... To me, these mothers that aren't mothers, they don't observe these boys in a maternal way. I don't feel the same warmth that you do. To me, they watch over them the way you would observe an experiment. I think that's a great point. And there's a moment later when I felt like she was really looking at him as a clinician. When I say warmth, I'm using that kind of generously. She's not actively hurting him. She's not preventing him from doing anything in terms of restraining him. She's not physically menacing him. So it's a pretty low bar. (laughs) Okay, she is smiling. And I was trying to sort of convey some of that in our little scene before we Mm -hmm. got started. You did a very good job. Thank you. So if she's being canny, that's one thing. But she's not being overtly threatening. And I think more than anything, if I go back to that idea of providing basic necessities, it seems like it's in their best interest to keep the boys well and alive. Giving her the benefit of the doubt, I guess, she does try to impart some lessons. You referred to the opening scene we did. At your age, your body is changing. And she mentions molting as a fragile state and how starfish only change once. This is not your typical birds and bees talk, obviously. There's nothing nurturing in it, exactly. It feels like it's education, and that's about it to me. Did it feel differently to you? Because you did put some tenderness in the scene, which I guess I think was there. I put it in there because when we rewatched it to transcribe it, I thought that it was there. I'm again, I'm not saying they're joyfully embracing each other, but she does physically kiss him. And I believe it. It's not like, for example, Kurt in The Sound of Music. (laughs) Deep reference for everybody. It does seem real. On some points, though, she is downright Mendacious. She denies there was ever a drowned boy, presenting them with a starfish instead, as if that is evidence of Nicholas's misperception. 
The women all assemble by lantern light later while Nicholas is having this feverish sleep and one of them retrieves what must be the dead body. So she is gaslighting them. But why? You could read it as a mother offering protection or the illusion of protection, holding off death for the moment until a boy is ready to understand it. I do not mean to sound like an apologist for these folks, but I think that there are interesting multiple readings of it. I like this scene of her denial quite a lot, but for a slightly different reason, because I think it's a great example of what is there for the audience to assemble for themselves, but is never directly addressed. Do you remember what the ocean is like behind her as she emerges, as she approaches them with this starfish? The vision that I have is almost like hellfires mm -hmm. rising and roaring behind exactly. her. It's tempestuous. I wouldn't go out in a boat in it, much less try to swim. So she must be a proficient, almost preternaturally gifted swimmer for such rough surf, almost like she is of the sea. It's a tantalizing bit that your brain almost doesn't register, but it is there. Just one more thing contributing to your unease and the layers of mystery, and it is multiple layers deep. There is so much here that is subconsciously working on you to do with water, birth, motherhood, and something that's literally lost in the translation is the fun of the language and all the levels that it's working on. La mer for the sea, you'll help me with my pronunciation here, and La mer, is there a difference for mother? There isn't. It's the same sound. Right. So we don't quite pick up on that as non-native French speakers, but there is so much happening even with just the wordplay. And the director talked about the ocean being these maternal waters that are hard to navigate. And I love the shoreline here. It's that volcanic rock, like the earth was just formed that day. Yeah, you're exactly right, because this first time that we see all the women and the boys together on the beach, it's such a striking tableau. The geography of this film is so fantastic. And seeing that for me, them assembled that way, it really underscored that this dead boy is an indictment. Somewhere along the way, either someone has failed in their caretaking or some procedure has failed. These boys can't be completely protected by these women, and that's borne out by the scene soon following where a nurse has to be dispatched to stitch Nicholas's hand on the beach after he cuts it on some coral. Again, it's such a beautiful shot, and there is also so much in it. One, it tells us that there is an official organized entity for medical care on the island, the only thing around other than residential dwellings, and then two, the mother recedes into the background, out of focus, as the nurse, whom we will see much more of, is the strong, focused foreground figure. She actually repairs Nicholas. It's the first act we see of someone doing something actually healing or restorative for him. And like a lot of things in the film, it just raises more questions than it answers. Because in one sense, it's medical care that we're familiar with. So I think that that can kind of put us at ease when we shouldn't be. Because you may be thinking, you could still think quite rightly, we're on another planet even. But this is something that we know, that we're familiar with. And a person acting in a way we expect them to. Now you say another planet. Where do you picture this to be taking place? And I mean that in the sense of in a place that exists in the world we know but just isolated? Or is it a completely fictional fantasy horror setting? My understanding of the geography of it is crucial to the way I approach the rest of the story. Is it the same for you? I think I was still in that mode of, let me just see what happens. Because I might get a different answer later on. I don't, by the way, and that's great. I did think that it seemed like this landscape has been appropriated, that it existed before them. They didn't build it. But I was thinking, we're in some world that I may know, but maybe not. Did you expect Charlton Heston to come barging in and, you blew it up? <laughs> Probably. But that's what the director wants us to think about. Something we know, but something we don't know. Layers of mystery, as you mentioned. I also mentioned earlier that Nicholas's relationship with these other boys on the island, that it's adversarial most of the time. And now we have an actual physical altercation. He will not be called a coward. What exactly do you feel like it is that he's protecting with this behavior? 
I was really struck by the age now, again, of the kids, why this is happening, what the dynamic is in these boys. And the fact that they go to a physical place with it is really striking and harm a creature. That's when I noted that mother looks at him in something, curiosity, like an anthropologist, like a clinician, as I mentioned. Is it that recognition of this is the moment? This is when a new cycle is about to start. I can really only relate to it from Nicholas's side, and I can tell you what I thought if I was this boy. He's aggressive. He's lashing out. I see it as mounting frustration with constantly being kept in the dark. There's obviously a metaphor for adolescence in that, not recognizing the body that you're in from one day to the next, the confusion, the anger that comes from that. In the grips of that anger, you reference that, he smashes the starfish that's to destroy something. Maybe it's unfocused, but maybe it's specifically the symbol of this change that he's going through. This gift deceitfully given by his mother, quote unquote. He severs one of its arms and has a simultaneous nosebleed. So there's an obvious, very blatant connection between him and this creature. And that's when he's taken to this facility that I can't exactly call a hospital anymore for observation and an injection. Some background on this building, which was an actual hospital. It's now used for horror films. That's perfect. She said she had to change nothing <laughs> about it. Yeah, it seems to be taking on water and decaying. It sweats and drips like it's a living thing. This dynamic seeping habitat. It does not give me the same comfort as being underwater, obviously. It's about as comforting as being under anesthetic against your will, is what it feels like. And while he's there... They also probe him about these drawings. His thoughts go directly to mortality in response, which they seem to have no answer for. I don't know that they seem to have no answer. They pointedly give no answer. That to me is different. Is that just an amplification of the maternal protection thing you were talking about earlier? Or is that something completely more sinister? It feels completely different here. It feels like we know what's going on and we're not going to tell you what's going on. Can we talk for a second about the inspiration for the film itself? Sure. And that was the director's own appendectomy when she was about 10 years old. And going to that place of she had a vision of a young boy, specifically a boy, not a girl, lying on an operating table surrounded by nurses with masks on. And children don't know what's going on, so there's fear immediately. And she built everything from there. Well, it paints an imposing picture. And you say they all keep this information from him. I would say all except one. Among the group, he has one sympathetic nurse, the one that stitched his hand on the beach. She's more like a co-conspirator, an ally or confidant. I didn't trust her right away. Was that just me? That's just you. I fell for her immediately. Okay. I really felt they were on the same wavelength. I think you were supposed to. I think he's supposed to. The feeling that I get is that they share some innate sense of curiosity and the dissatisfaction that goes with that when it's forced to lay dormant for so long. I feel this most keenly when he's sharing his drawings with her. These things that he's replicating his artistic tendencies, where has he seen these things that he's drawing? The Ferris wheel, other animals. His drawings, to me, indicate that he has knowledge that the adults either don't have or long ago stopped concerning themselves with. And this nurse, her relative use, compared to the rest of the medical staff and the mothers, I guess that seems to me, it makes her more receptive to his explorations and his flights of fancy. She's certainly the only one who encourages him, and to me, truly nourishes him in the sense of in your soul. There are only feelings of oppression from his mother figure, as far as I see. She's responsible for this vile food that he served. She reacts negatively to his art. How much of this do you feel is rooted in some sort of Jocasta complex? Is it jealousy? Is it some attempt to quell any feeling in him that is remotely sexually motivated? Or is it something else? doing her job, which mm. we haven't fully realized what that is supposed to be. There seems to be a slight flaring of emotion, though, when she figures that this nurse is involved and she encounters the art. It seems to go beyond, I'm just here to do a job. I love the touch that comes next when he is on the operating table having this procedure 
that overhead light pattern is a starfish. And this procedure is similar to an ultrasound, but includes an injection to the belly. And he's not alone in having these procedures either. Separately, the nurses all gather to watch a procedure on film that appears to be a C-section, which gives you a queasy feeling because it's immediately tied to all the boys in the ward comparing their markings and scars. We are firmly in the realm of body horror here, I think. Do you feel that as well? Absolutely. Even if they just showed me a video of a C-section, <laughs> I would feel like we were in a body horror film. Starfish feelers approaching your belly button, is that body horror all by itself? <laughs> Lord. You don't find much more of a universal source for body horror stories than maternity. Haji Alilovich wanted to tell this maternity story, and her instinct was that it would be more unsettling if it were happening to a little boy. It's intentionally, intensely irrational to see it portrayed that way. I think it's a great idea. All the things that go with that, the knowledge and sensations of hosting another being in your own body, all of the psychological freight of being two entities in one. Just thinking of traditional maternity as a starting point, consider just the physical things that happen to a full-grown woman's body and now apply that to a child. Even choosing just one facet of that, imagining a 10-year-old body stretched to an unreal capacity for this enterprise. It's horrifying, and it's a very specific set of fears. So even though there are these moments that address adolescence, this seems less about coming of age than it is about motherhood. And your choice of the fits actually directly inspired me to choose this film as somewhat of a response to that. Do you feel like this is a mystery even more inscrutable than the fits was? I've got a couple of places to go here, so bear with me. Okay. I've been going round and round on this. Is it about gender? about gender roles, or just about process. And I still haven't quite decided, which is very appropriate, and the director leaves everything open for us and wants us to keep thinking about it. But ultimately, what does strike me the most is this group watching and then re-watching that C-section video. I'm watching it as a person confirming what happens to our bodies. And when I say our, I do mean women in this context. They might be watching it for the same reason, and then that seems to change a bit. Thinking about what's going to happen to a person that the nurse is fond of. And then this process idea of adapting to something that you're not capable of or that you don't want to do, and then being forced to do it, that to me is what body horror is. Things happening to you that you can't control. And then I'm still thinking about these traditional notions of mothering and caregiving, and I'm still not sure that it's about that. And then, on to the fits, as you mentioned. I first and foremost think of the fits as a kid's world. As a safe world, even with something confusing and possibly scary that might be happening. That might be coming externally to you internally. There definitely is that moving on to a new stage of life. But here in evolution, we're not in a safe world. I wrote down gaslighting as well, like you did. This feels like an adult, though not necessarily human, world in which kids are just the pawns. They're being forced to go through a new stage. There's the natural progression of age, but this other thing is being put upon them. In both films, though, I think the neat thing is we're looking at the bravery of a young person. They're not in control, and they can't figure out the world on their own yet. I think both directors are interested in that moment of becoming a teenager and exploring that in more of a fairy tale fashion, though evolution goes fully into that territory. This bravery, that's exactly what I'm fixing on here, too. Nicholas returns from the hospital for the first time here, but to me he feels even more rebellious and restless and unquenchably curious than he ever has been. So much so that he breaks out in the evening and spies on one of these lantern-lit gatherings because he wants answers. He doesn't believe what the adults are telling him, and he'll try to find out even if it means going completely on his own. How would you describe what he encounters here? We had seen them earlier drinking from sea urchins, which is a really striking image, and now I'm thinking about crocodiles laying their eggs in mud as they writhe through that sand or the surf, I'm not sure what, 
I'm thinking that we don't see their genitalia, and I also couldn't tell and still don't know. Do they have fetuses of some kind? I've watched it four times, and I still can't exactly tell you. There's this group of women, and they're lying what seems to be naked and heaving on the beach, in the shape of a starfish. I missed that, thank you. And there is some sort of birth, it seems like, but it's, again, so many things half-seen. Are your eyes deceiving you? Mom has suckers on her back like tentacles would have. This was the point that I thought, this writhing, this seems to be the first instance of a truly sexual component to anyone's behavior. Did it strike you that way? Did it seem like that was at least a little bit of what Haji Lilovich was trying to convey? Do you mean sexual in terms of intimacy, or do you mean in terms of actual, this is a part of reproduction, in terms of the reproductive cycle, of which there are many parts? I mean both. I mean in the sense, yes, that this is part of the reproductive cycle, but also, is this intended to be arousing, confusing, disturbing to an adolescent or to an adult? Got it. I didn't think arousal. I thought we've seen them in some part of this cycle, and I don't know which part. Because the specter of this sexuality, it comes up more than once, and we'll address this a little bit more when we get to the end, but I definitely felt like that was a component of it. Okay. I guess what he does next in terms of viewing his mother, who doesn't know she's being watched, in the shower when he does see the suckers on her back, that could be taken as a sexual awakening of some kind. But in keeping with everything else in the film, one half seen, half felt, half observed, maybe not even registering anywhere but in your subconscious. Well, after viewing this birth of sorts, Nicholas is returned to the hospital for another ultrasound, and this time a heartbeat is detected. His procedures, they're a stark contrast for the way things occur in nature, and we realize that with this nifty juxtaposition with what we've just seen on the beach. Do you feel like Haji Lilovich is commenting one way or the other on which way might be more or less horrifying? Having read more of her interviews and reading more about her, I don't think she's commenting either way, or she's commenting in 20 different potential ways. She's a person after my own heart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have your cake and eat it <laughs> Have too, it always. Well, it may just be me projecting, but I feel like any natural process that's influenced or channeled and controlled by humans is the far more frightening option of the two. This reversal, with the boys being the fertile carriers of whatever Lovecraftian confection is on this tray, it has the overtones of abomination. Case in point, the boys don't always survive this harvesting. In fact, maybe they never do, as far as we know so far. I think abomination is an interesting and strong word here. Not a big fan of kids. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got... Maternal death rates, I looked it up, unfortunately. Mm. Mortality rates in different countries. We in the U.S. do not fare well on that list. I think the abomination is watching the C-section video. If you understand truly what is done, you could never look at that process the same way again. So the abomination is the birth, not who it's being done to. At least, that's my opinion. <laughs> well, to me... Where I come down on this is that it's just no childhood. Their entire existence seems predicated on being subjects for this experiment. They're destined to just suffer and then probably die in this strange paternity ward. It's not the most generous assessment of maternity or the processes that surround it. So what I'm saying is that you and I and Lucille Hadjilovich, we're all on the same page as far as this goes. It also makes me think a lot about the title, What's Evolving? There is a lot of mysterious effort being put into propagating the species, or at least some species. Nicholas has survived so far, but it seems to be in spite of what the doctors are doing to him, not because of. It's because of his innate curiosity and will to fight that he's best equipped to move forward. The most basic step of achieving evolution is just continuing to exist, the survival of the fittest. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word evolution, I don't immediately think of humans. I think of animal species first. And I want to mention something the director said. How she built the story around the images and the mood. And her words were current and exquisite. 
which makes me think of the times that we live in. We live in a forced birth time, and I'm not going to say any more about that, I promise. But we're definitely in a current and exquisite period. Everything you tell me that she has said just makes me want to know her more and more. Her brain to me is just fascinating. Calling back to what you were saying about the second time the nurses watched this C-section footage, it seems to definitely have a variety of effects on the group, and the most significant of which is on Nicholas's nurse, who suggests they draw together, which is a touch that I love. She draws something similar to the creature that the boys initially buried together, and it's a small gesture, another one of those details that you could easily miss, but it feels like such a declaration of solidarity. Like she's saying that I too have these curiosities and long to explore this world. I'm with you, not them. I too dream of things other than this place. All of that encapsulated in crayon in just a few seconds. I thought maybe she cut that out of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, she may have to get on that because Nicholas's next ultrasound shows a little elder god in his belly coming right along. And as his physiological countdown seems to be beyond reversal, she, his nurse, has crossed a threshold. She is definitely way more conspirator than nurse at this point. She shows him disturbing secret medical files. They go to the beach and she shows him her suckers. And there is definitely an erotic exploratory quality to these encounters. That's what I wanted to ask you about, because it did strike me that we're going into some sort of sexual, in terms of intimacy territory, there. At the very least, those early childhood things of playing doctor, or you show me yours, I'll show you mine. It made me pretty uncomfortable because of the age difference. It's interesting, though, the way they treat it. He fights against it. Yes. Most definitely. Yes. It doesn't seem like he's ready for it. Do you think it's more palatable to a general audience that this is a boy with an older woman? Do you imagine there might have been more of an outcry if the genders were reversed? I think that's a great point. I'm sure, though, people were still uncomfortable with seeing it. Because it's not Porky's. It's not being played like Porky's <laughs> right. or anything like that. No, but after a long swim underwater, he has to be resuscitated. So there's actual mouth-to-mouth -mouth contact. And we cannot overestimate the symbol of dying and being born anew. It seemed like a test as well, pushing him to do that to see if he would be able to come back. Well, after this spring break outing, they return to the hospital and he sees his friend in a large tank. And this is the fate that awaits him. He knows this. And after his surgery, we are truly now at the intersection of David Lynch Street and H.P. Lovecraft Avenue. I somehow forgot about this image from previous viewings, so it really took me by surprise seeing it this time. Looking down to see babies feeding on him? You can only assume that this is nursing these two alien offspring of his. His body providing sustenance of some kind. Not for long, though, because finally and for good, the nurse breaks him out, and it's back to the beach, and there is a much longer protracted underwater dive slash kiss where they are sharing air. Truly the kiss of life in its most basic terms, keeping him alive through this physical connection. Reassuringly though, at least for me, we are back to a series of images that echoes the opening shots, if they're not the exact same ones. It seems like they are the exact same scenes moving a different direction. It feels like we've gone in one side of a treacherous place and come out safely on the other side to be greeted by something soothing and familiar. It's like that feeling you get when you recognize the structure where your roller coaster took off from and you know you're cruising into home base having survived that experience. They surface here and they are waking up in a boat. And what I am immediately struck by is that they are two of a kind and yet still of two completely different worlds. She disappears into the water, and he drifts inland, and he finally shouts her name. Why do you think we only learn her name once she is gone forever? Oh, God, I don't know. I have no idea. And who knows if it was even her name? This is just occurring to me. Maybe that was his mother's name, his real mother. Maybe he was just doing his best Stanley Kowalski. Could be. Stella! Maybe he realized, oh, God, I'm in Marseille. <laughs> what next? Well, this is her intended destination for him, clearly. Somewhere he will be safe. Civilization in the background to me implies that he belongs there or can at least pass as normal there. 
but it does make me wonder what is more sinister, the world above the waves or below? You'll have to listen to our bonus Patreon episode on Maiden to hear more about that idea. No, definitely the colony of kidnapped kids who are being forced to have babies when they're boys. That's the most dangerous part. Oh, I think you're oversimplifying it a little bit. <laughs> no. The movie, it really does refuse to yield much, and I think that leads some people to dislike it. I think it's a combination of things. Some people just aren't comfortable letting go and drifting into the uncertain places the film takes us, and others just don't want to have to work this hard. They feel like the film is intent on keeping them at arm's length, and they don't want to put in the effort necessary to overcome that. Those are the people who would never survive in this environment. They don't have the curiosity or the fight to get off the island. The director also says great things about people that we love and that we've covered in the show. A Pitchapong wear a set of cool, and Peter Strickland, by the way. She felt like the Duke of Burgundy was a letter just for her. And she mentions how difficult it was to find funding because the film is so metaphorical and lacks explanations. I was interested to read, it's not because of her gender, which is something that I was wondering. She just says that France is not a metaphorical place. And she talks about films being ruined by explanations, so she didn't want to go that route, even though she did specifically make some things more explicit. I definitely don't feel like it was being so obtuse as to be unapproachable. It may be too elliptical for some audiences. One reviewer I did read said it requires much patience for little reward. But it was just right for me. Do you need any sort of resolution to be satisfied? I don't. There's so much reward in this. That's a crazy, that's crazy talk. Yeah. Viewers just need to recalibrate. This idea that a mystery needs a solution, that's for your grandpa's movies. Haji Lilovich says that it's about emotions, sensations, and it really succeeds admirably on those terms, I think. I saw it at a genre festival, like I said. Is this a genre film to you? Does it feel like that? If it is, I can't quite pinpoint the genre. It feels like something completely different. I definitely think it is, but I think so in a good way. I don't mean that as a pejorative. It's obviously definitely body horror. Exactly what you said earlier, not being in control of your own body, that is a fundamental fear. And we want to apply all these deeper meanings to it, but it also functions on that simple level that you referenced of being 10 years old on a table surrounded by doctors touching your body. That's frightening. That in itself is enough. That feeling of being prey to the whims of others, that is enough. What is it do you think that Nicholas knows? Or is it not about what he knows, but what he suspects? Could he even articulate what that is, do you think? How could he possibly fathom this conspiracy? How could he even fathom what he looks down to see with two beings, or more, on him? Yeah. As a 10-year-old, there's just no way you can conceive of the scope of what's happening. And that's one of the things that I like so much. This simple inversion of motherhood and where the perceived threat is. So many times he's in the hospital or on an operating table and is surrounded by women whom we instinctively think of as caretakers or protectors. It's such a simple switch and it makes everything so fraught with fresh complexities. I definitely want to check out more of her work. And as I was reading more about her, I realized the thing that I didn't know. She's married to Gaspar Noé, who she's also worked with for many years. Now, I haven't seen his work you talk about him fairly often. So I just want to ask in general, what do you think about the work that she's done with him, his work in general? Are there similarities? Well, her directorial efforts are a smaller body of work, obviously, so far, so there's less to judge. But I really prefer hers, and it's just a matter of personality. She resonates with me, and I generally tend to have less patience with people who have to be overly showy in their provocations. Shoving something in someone's face doesn't necessarily require any particular degree of skill or intelligence. To be clear, I think there is absolutely more to him and his work as a filmmaker. Are you familiar with what he's done? How many of his have you seen? Zero. Okay. I know of them, but haven't watched any of them. Well, I do think he's honest about who he is. You probably wouldn't like who he is, you personally, Erica. But I don't think it's just provocation for provocation's sake. I think he's absolutely genuine about his obsessions and is a very skilled filmmaker. His overall work is just hit and miss for me, though. Whereas looking at hers so far, it seems like she would have to stray far from her mark to ever make something I didn't thoroughly enjoy. 
I think most of that is because I sense the satisfaction of a filmmaker who is building a completely self-contained and strictly controlled world. Some filmmakers, they seem to leave room for wildness and accidents. I don't get that impression here, or at least with this film. This is strong and precise filmmaking. And I love the way that she describes that difficulty getting funding too. All of these things play in together so beautifully for me with my image of her. It's not just because she's a woman. It's because she's her, she says. And you can see that. And I think that's what some people are reacting to that find this so elusive. It feels extremely personal for me. And like you have to be on its particular wavelength. But if you are, it's incredibly satisfying. If you hum with the same vibration, it's a wonderful film. And those contemporaries that are kindred spirits that she cites, they illustrate that perfectly too. Peter Strickland is the example that jumps out to me. It's a similarly hermetically sealed and idiosyncratic environment like this. And my favorite part, I think, is that she doesn't spare herself any intellectual rigor either. She says the reason that she wants to make films is because there's something that she doesn't get. And after all the exploration and explanation, maintaining the enigma is what maintains your desire. It's what keeps us in pursuit. Well, I'm so glad that you got to see this and you introduced me to it. And I cannot wait to catch up with all of her work. Hopefully we won't have to wait another 11 years for the next one. Absolutely. I need to start back with the first film. Funny you bring it up, because that's my recommendation. Perfect. Innocence. It's Haji Lilovich's previous feature from 2004, and it's sort of the feminine counterpoint to Evolution. It stars Zoe Auclair and Marion Cotillard, and it's about a year in the life of a girl's boarding school in the middle of a deep, dark forest. And you'll see similar themes of seclusion and that dynamic of powerful adults and the children who have to tolerate that. Water plays a significant symbolic role, and there's a starfish present in this one, too. It's the forest of innocence that feels opposite to me. It has this enveloping ripeness and fecundity that is quite different from this crisp, infinite ocean of evolution. The other way I think that it diverges significantly from evolution is that it's very much a coming-of-age story. If you are in the market for an immaculately shot, dark and elliptical fairy tale in which mysterious and sinister forces may be at work to corrupt and destroy youthful imagination, Lucille Hadjialilovich is the filmmaker for you. What about you? I've got one of your absolute favorites. I know you want to do an episode on this. And it's a direct influence on this film, also set in a girls' school, and that's Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975, directed by Peter Weir, with Rachel Roberts, Anne Louise Lambert, Margaret Nelson, and in a very small part, a very young Jackie Weaver. I chose it because it is an explicit influence on evolution, and because, like evolution, the mystery grows no clearer and no less haunting as the years go by and I watch it again and again. Like the director says, it's often those films with no explanation that live in your memory the longest. Though, if it weren't also such a superlative film beyond the lack of explanation, that might not be the case. Every moment of it is designed to paint a vivid but elusive picture. There are lots of transitions happening here as well in age and development, and that influence of female authority is also very dominant and bent, if you know what I mean. Peter Weir talks about a first screening in the U.S. with American audiences being really disturbed by the fact that the mystery remains unsolved. And according to him, a distributor threw his coffee cup at the screen at the end of it <laughs> because he'd wasted two hours of his life, in quotes, a mystery without a goddamn solution. I'm thinking also about a film that we just watched called The Demon with Cameron Mitchell, <laughs> which offers no explanation to its absolute detriment. To me, there's a difference, possibly kind of a subtle one. That film felt like they refused to or were unable to settle on, is this supernatural or natural, or just simply lack the facility to make up something interesting. Picnic and Hanging Rock and Evolution, though, feel like any explanation would never suffice and just be completely outside of our understanding. Well, you're absolutely right. I will definitely do Picnic at Hanging Rock as one of my selections for the show one day. I will not, however, be doing The Demon. Agreed. So once again, that's two great recommendations. 
Innocence, and Picnic at Hanging Rock. And that brings us to the end of episode 111. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you'll never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out what all of our cinema-loving friends are up to. I want to say a special thanks this time around to our friends Matt and Travis over at The Complete Podcast for having me on recently. They're in the middle of their season covering Kishlovsky, and I had a great time with them talking about a short film about killing and its corresponding Decalogue episode number five. I always love talking with Matt and Travis about anything, but that was a particularly fruitful discussion about a pretty heavy film, so many thanks to them. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Brian Sauer, David Blakesley, David Harrington, Jeff Duncanson, Andy Wolverton, Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films Podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, and Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemarried. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.